Recently, I've been thinking about how I worship our Lord, whether it's with the body of believers or in my own personal walk and in my own life. And I was convicted of lacking in my own understanding of worship as well as sometimes my half-hearted attitude when it comes to worshiping our great God. This morning, I would like for us to do our own self-examination. Excuse me. Our own internal audit to see how we're doing in offering worship to God that is pleasing and acceptable to him. If you've personally been struggling in your worship, then my prayer for you this morning is that as we study Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that it will be an encouragement, that your heart will be reoriented, that you will be motivated to worship our great God as he ought to be worshipped. And so this morning, I would like for us to focus our brief time on just this one verse and to answer the question, what is your acceptable service of worship? We will walk through this one verse systematically to answer this question and understand God's requirement for you and of you in acceptable worship. And so there's so much meat and depth in this one verse, so let's dig in. And let's go ahead and read that first verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Before we get into it, a a brief background on the beginning of chapter 12. Paul is, of course, exhorting the church of believers in Rome, right? This is written to the Romans. And he begins with a therefore. Now, whenever you see this word, the student of scripture should automatically ask, what is it therefore? So if you look back, Paul is using the therefore in conjunction to the previous 11 chapters of Romans. Paul has dealt in depth with sin and man's depravity in the first four chapters of Romans. Paul then talks about Christ as the answer to sin through salvation by faith in the next seven chapters. And so he has laid out this beautiful and thoughtful theology and theological argument in these previous chapters of the redemptive work of God through Christ. So we come to chapter 12, the apex, the the culmination of all that he has said, and now Paul begins to show us how to live out our faith and apply it to our daily living. Thus begins the practical application of Paul's explanation of his theology. So again, the question I want to answer this morning is, what is your acceptable service of worship? And as we do this, I think it would make sense for us to define what worship is. What is acceptable worship? So let's define worship. One author sums up the idea and definition of worship, and I want you to keep this in mind as the foundation upon which we build our understanding of worship. He says, often the word worship is commonly used in a very loose and unscriptural manner. We speak of the whole service of the Lord's day, morning and evening, as public worship, but there's a great deal in it that is not worship. Reading the Bible and meditating upon it is not worship. It may lead to worship, but it is not worship. Listening to a sermon is not worship. Praying is not, a, is not worship. It may be and should be accompanied by worship, but it is not worship. Singing 
is not necessarily worship. There are hymns which, if sung intelligently and in proper spirit, would be worship, but they are comparatively few in the hymnology of the day. Worship is a definite act of a character very clearly defined in the Bible. It is, as said, the soul bowing before God in adoring contemplation of himself. The root of the word, the, the root of the Hebrew word translated worship in the Old Testament means to bow down. It has been said well, in prayer we are occupied with our needs, in thanksgiving we are occupied with our blessings, in worship we are occupied with himself. So, you can see that when it comes to worship, it's not necessarily what we do, though that is very much a part of it, but how we present ourselves when we come before him. And Paul gives us two requirements, and we're going to look at those two requirements. We are, we are to be a living sacrifice, and we are to be a holy sacrifice. He exhorts his listeners by implying that the acceptable worship is when we present ourselves as living and, and holy. So first, let's look at we are going to be, we need to be a living sacrifice. The sacrificial language that Paul is using here is done on purpose to invoke a remembrance of the Old Testament sacrificial imagery. I'm pretty sure the first century people, the first century Christians were very familiar with sacrifices, right? This was something that was practiced and it was a part of their life, it was part of their religion. One commentary helps us understand how sacrifices were offered and the implication of what Paul is saying here. A sacrifice is an offering made to God as an atonement for sin or any offering made to him and his service as an expression of thanksgiving or, or homage. It implies that he who offers it presents it entirely, releases all claim or right to it and leaves it to be disposed of for the honor of God. In the case of an animal, it was slain, the blood was offered, and in the case of any other offering, such as a first fruits, it was set apart to the service of God, and he offered it, released all claim on it, and submitted it to God to be disposed of at his will. This is the offering which the, apostles, the apostle entreats the Romans to make, to devote themselves to God, as if they had no longer any claim on themselves, to be disposed of by him, to suffer and bear all that he might appoint, and to promote his honor in a way which he might command. This is the nature of true religion. So now, Paul's basically saying, you dear Christian, you need to present yourself as a sacrifice, and not only that, but as a living sacrifice and be used by God however he chooses to use you. How do you think the people would have responded to something like this? Wait, wait, Paul, let me, let me get this straight. Are you saying that this new sacrifice no longer consists of taking the lives of others like an animal, but we are to give our own life incomplete? Now you can imagine how this would definitely be striking, right? Even controversial and raise some serious eyebrows. Obviously, we live in an age and time where, where, where we never really participated in animal sacrifices. But to the unconverted Jew, this is what they did for the atonement of their sins. 
But now as believers in Christ, they definitely understood the implication of what Paul was now proposing. Paul's not playing around. He is reinforcing from earlier in his letter, in Romans chapter 6, in which he tells the hearer to understand that it is in totality, engaging in spirit, mind, body, and soul, and also your heart, and oh, your attitude, oh, and your words, and your actions, all of it, all of you. Since you are now a new creature, a creature made alive in Christ, no longer under law, but under grace, you, therefore, present yourself in this new life. You are now to consistently, constantly do this, and there is no need to have a dead animal to represent you before God. Now, if someone asked you, so what does a living sacrifice look like? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? How would you answer that? A living sacrifice, as Paul says earlier in Romans, is someone who presents their members to God as instruments of righteousness, rather than to present themselves to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, where sin does not dominate us, where we do not obey the passions of this world or the body. Pick up your cross, sacrifice your personal wants and desires, and follow Jesus. It would be a complete submission, surrender, a wholehearted devotion. That is what Paul's talking about. Now, as a point of reference, I, wanna, I want us to contrast that with what a person looks like who does not live a sacrificial life. And I think the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he gives us a good indication of what, a, what kind of a person this would be. He writes... Do not love the world or the things of the world or in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. I think the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, very much encompass everything that would be hedonistic, that would be man-centered, selfish. There's nothing self-sacrificing about this, is there? What is the lust of the flesh? Well, the lust of the flesh is pursuing and trying to satisfy excessive desires for food, drink, sex. It's basically the physical gratification, the flesh, satisfying the flesh, right? Lust of the eyes, pursuing and satisfying materialism, coveting after things you don't have, and envying or being jealous of things we want. Pride of life. As the poet William Ernst Henley says in his poem Invictus, I am the master of my, my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Living for yourself, putting yourself on the throne of your own life. The great theologian Bon Jovi sums it up best when he says, it's my life. It's now or never, but I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. You can see how there is nothing sacrificial about a life that is so focused and fulfilling the wants and desires of your own life that God has no place or room in your heart. Brothers and sisters, let's be honest. The requirement to be a living sacrifice, a 
consistently, submitting wholly, this is not an easy task. And it is difficult to live in such a manner in a consistent day-to-day life. And Paul knows this because when he encouraged the Galatians to persevere and fight, he explained that the desires of our flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And they're opposed to each other and they keep us from doing the things that we ought to do, which is what? To live a life of sacrifice and obedience. So how should we live up to this expectation of living sacrifice that is pleasing to God? Well, before we answer that question, Paul tells us not only are we to be a living sacrifice, but we are to be a holy sacrifice. Now you might be thinking, are you, are you kidding me right now, Paul? There's more? It's hard enough to live as a living sacrifice on this messed up earth with all my personal and relational conflicts and struggles, not to mention climate change and political agendas and pronouns and nouns and adjectives and Satan and his influences. And now we are to be holy, not only to be living, but holy. What do you mean that we are to be a holy sacrifice? What does a holy sacrifice even look like? I would hope that when you think holiness, you automatically think about God because he is holy, right? Isaiah. Chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. Holy, holier, holiest. Now Paul is telling you to be holy. When you hear this instruction, it can be both daunting and humbling at the same time. Why? Because if you know anything about our great God and his standard, you know that the expectation of God is perfection. Nothing less will suffice. God does not want anything less. He will not accept unholy sacrifices. He has a standard. And just as the Israelites had to follow a standard and instructions on how to offer holy sacrifices, we also should come before the Lord in a posture that is worthy of God's favor rather than judgment. You see, holiness is not an option. Holiness is demanded. So I want us to briefly look at God's expectation as he has revealed his high standard of what is holy and acceptable worship in the Old Testament. I think this will give you a a better understanding, a better picture of what that looks like. In Exodus, after God called Israel out of Egypt, he gave his people instructions on how he is to be worshipped. He gave such specific instructions so that there was no misunderstanding in how he was to be worshipped. He gave instructions on what to sacrifice, Numbers chapter 6 and 29, when to sacrifice, Numbers chapter 29, how to sacrifice, Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, why they should sacrifice, Leviticus chapter 4, where they should sacrifice, Exodus 26 through 31, and who is to sacrifice, Exodus 29 and Leviticus chapter 6 through 8. 
from the specific instructions for the sacrifice to the expectations of the believer who comes before him, it was a way of worship that was centered and focused on Yahweh and Yahweh alone. This was our scripture passage this morning in Hebrews as the author references the standard of God regarding God's holiness and his righteousness. Let me read it to you again. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now look down and skip down to verses 28 and 29. This is what I really want you to understand. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is so holy, he is so pure, that no creature could even dare touch the holy mountain, the holy ground where his presence dwelt in the Old Testament. If you couldn't even touch the ground, do you think any living thing tainted and defiled with sin, with the curse of sin, could stand before God in his presence? You cannot stand before him. As one preacher said, it would be like a wax figurine standing before a blast furnace. The author of Hebrews understands the standard, and he understands that it is not only by his grace and mercy. And this is, this is an overwhelming and sobering reminder why we should not have such flippant attitudes towards our great and mighty God when it comes to worship. If you're going to come before the Lord because this is your spiritual service of worship, which he both demands and deserves, and you want him to accept it, then you have to present your whole self as a living and holy sacrifice. I hope you see this is a weighty matter. Your spiritual service is not a stroll in the park. So if you've been applying what we've been talking about thus far, let me ask you now again, how is your internal audit going? in how you worship our great God? What are your thoughts in how you've been worshiping and presenting yourself before him in your relationship? Are you overcome with emotions of grief or pain or sorrow? Or are you spiritually so exhausted as you've tried to worship God but feel like you failed? Do you feel like you're the only person who, who doesn't measure up who continues to fall short of the mark that is set by the high standard of God? Brothers and sisters, this feels pretty weighty. This feels pretty heavy. And it really is a weighty matter. Sanctification is not for the faint-hearted. But I think this is the perfect stop, spot to take a moment, take a deep breath, and be reminded for all of us 
that we can lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And we can run with endurance the race that is set before us by looking to who? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, here's your hope. Here is your relief, because I want to remind you, we have a great example to look to and follow. You are not alone. Our Lord and Savior has promised you, dear children, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. We can move forward in this life, and we can be a living and holy sacrifice, because Christ was a living and holy sacrifice unto God for our sake. Oh, and by the way, all of this was made possible by the same God whose standard we can never meet or keep on our own. So, praise God for the example of a living and holy sacrifice, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul elsewhere says that we are to be imitators of Christ. We are to follow Jesus' example of obedience and sacrifice. Be imitators of Christ by submitting your lives wholly and completely, dying to self, living for him. That is what he did for us. We are to be deliberate, and I want to encourage you to be purposeful in living your life in, in honor and glory of God. And remember, it's, it, it's not how hard you try. It's whose you are. And it's your understanding and accepting of God's free gift of salvation and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. The only reason we are an acceptable living sacrifice, a sweet aroma to the nostrils of God, is because of God's mercy. All this is contingent and based on God, not you. I can't repeat this truth enough, that the sacrifice of Christ is the foundation the ground on which our sacrifices can now be offered and accepted. God has been merciful to us by saving us. Man can do nothing to earn his freedom from the bondage of sin and death. In fact, it was Christ's sacrifice for us which proved God's mercy on us to begin with. It's not a secret. It's not some formula that we need to figure out. Paul makes it crystal clear right from the beginning of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? He tells us, by the mercies of God. It is only by his mercy and through his mercy that we are now even able to enter before his throne. I think we tend to forget so quickly, don't we? That the, the spiritual battle which continually wages within us, when we are so tired, when we are so exhausted, when we are so flustered and frustrated, it's easy for us, human beings, in our flesh, to tend to go back to our old ways of life because we're so familiar. And honestly, sometimes it's, it's easier to go back because it makes us all more comfortable. Or we feel like such failures and we struggle to find the confidence to believe that God will accept us even in our weakness. And when we've failed him again and again and again, Dear friends, don't believe in the lies of Satan. Continue to press forward 
and fight and believe that our God is good even when we are not. He is merciful, and your response and motivation to that mercy you receive will bring forth a heart and an attitude of proper worship. We should gladly give a all, coming before him and sacrificing what we have, for without him we would have nothing to show for but eternal damnation and separation. This is the free gift of salvation through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice that is sufficient for the believer to now present themselves as a living sacrifice. When Christ is your example and he is the foundation upon which you can confidently present yourselves before God, you have nothing to fear. You don't need to be disheartened, but also you have no excuses. So humble yourselves, come before him, on the merits of Jesus Christ, and he will lift you up. This is the proper response of the believer. Really, when you think about it, it is the only responsible of the believer. You're responsible to be a living and holy sacrifice because of God's redemption and love through Christ is your spiritual worship. A better translation you can say, this is a logical service. This is a reasonable service for you. It makes sense, right? With the argument that Paul lays out from Romans 9 through 11, the only reasonable and logical outcome or response from you for all that God has done for you through Christ is wholehearted, sacrificial, and holy worship. Not just because it makes sense in Paul's mind, from a, from a logical perspective, but also a practical one, in that it should not be about works or wrote outward expressions of offering superficially, half-hearted sacrifices, but the result of a transformed inner being, a devotion unto the Lord. The transformation in your lives brings about the freedom to Christ rather than bondage to ritual, ritualism in this world. Does that make sense? Listen, this, this exhortation or instruction to live a sacrificial and holy life, I, I really believe applies to us more than ever in the time that we're living in. In a culture that has turned up the pressure to conform to its hedonistic and, and selfish ideas and thoughts, my hope, brothers and sisters, my hope and my prayer for you is that you persevere in your faith, rooted in obedience, Present your whole selves to God as an act of worship. Brothers and sisters, return to your first love. Study the scriptures and understand our great God. Actively pursue God with the help of the Spirit and live a transformed life, growing in Christ-likeness and righteousness. Purpose in your heart, devoting yourself to prayer and meditating on God's word, and I'm telling you, your affections and love for him will grow and deepen. And then with the saints, you can boldly proclaim all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. I want to encourage you this morning to submit wholly and trust in the power and the victory of Jesus. And believe that through his spirit, you will overcome your temptations 
your deficiencies, your insecurities. This is a battle that we will continue to rage in our hearts and minds on this side of glory. So don't be disheartened. Don't be overwhelmed. Because Jesus assures us that he has overcome the world. That he has conquered death. That he has provided access to our Heavenly Father, who so desires to have that relationship with you. So dear friends, run to him. Bow down before him and present yourself in response to this abundant and undeserving love and grace and mercy which he freely has bestowed upon you through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus and the good news which he set before us to free us from our bondage to sin, to be able to worship you as you ought to be worshipped. Father, we acknowledge that oftentimes we have failed and fallen short, but in the same breath we are thankful and relieved that you do not hold it against us because of the precious blood of Jesus. As we meditate on your character, your attributes, and as you illuminate our hearts and minds through your word, may the appropriate response of our life be abundant worship. For you, Lord, are worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. Amen.